Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Ian Smith, Companies Editor. How are you doing, Ian? Not too bad, John. How are you? Not too bad. And Harriet Russell, Sectors Editor. How are you, Harriet? Yeah, good. Thanks, John. Excellent. So today we are going to speak about your cover feature this week, Harriet, which is the consumer, consumer health check. Consumer yeah. health check. We're going to discuss some uh, some of the results and news on the market, results cranking up. Some interesting stories out there, one of which you've written uh, as well, Harriet, especially the Jimmy Choo story. Yeah, it was uh, it was breaking news this week that Jimmy Choo, just three months after it put itself up, well, its largest shareholder, put it up for sale, it's, uh, it's found a buyer across the pond. Okay, and also we're going to get a return to deal for our uh, weekly chat with Simon Thompson about his small cap picks. Let's get to the news straight away. I mean, let's talk Jimmy Choo. Yeah, it was not a deal that I necessarily saw coming. I knew that Michael Kors, Michael Kors has, uh, who is the now buyer, um, has been through a bit of ringer really over in the US. It did ex- had this huge boom, massive crash, and now it's sort of working its way back up again. And the problem with that business was really that during this huge boom, their prices were actually relatively competitive against the rest of the luxury sector out there. And suddenly, everyone at least everyone in my immediate peer circle anyway, had a Michael Kors handbag. Mine too. Yes, I'm sure. (laughs) And uh, unfortunately, what that does for luxury retailers is that they lose that exclusivity kind of tag and unfortunately, no one wants it anymore. It's a bit like the old Burberry story when uh, when Daniel Daniela Westbrook <laughs> yeah. started walking around in a Burberry jumpsuit. Or whatever yeah, it was. it's really not dissimilar. The effect is that it proliferates and then it loses this kind of sh- shine or sheen, and people just get over it and they move on to the next thing. Well, that's fashion, folks. Right. So Michael Kors, as part of its its recovery strategy, has obviously said, right, Jimmy Choo, shoes. Yeah. That's that's and the next thing for us. In terms of their rationale, I understand that Jimmy Choo is much more of a glittering jewel than Michael Kors, so they've obviously teamed up with what they perceive to be a much more kind of high-end and therefore defensive brand. Is it, is it high-end, Jimmy Choo? I mean, yeah, like... absolutely. Shoes there are 400... The average pair... Well, I think actually the starting price now is £495 for a pair. The handbags are a lot more expensive. Sorry, I almost just fell off my chair. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the handbags run up to around a grand, so... Um, what's, a, what's a Michael Kors handbag by comparison? Well, they were. I mean, uh, when people were buying them in, in droves, they're around 275. Oh, cheap rubbish. Yeah, exactly. And there were questions actually over their quality as well. So that was an issue. Right. So this is really them trying to get up the uh, the kind of value chain of luxury. Back up the ladder, so right. to speak. Um, yeah. And suffice to say, I've never been the biggest fan of Jimmy Choo as a stock. Um, but this premium is very, very generous. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Just shows how much they want it. I mean, this, does this also play into the fact that US retail is is perhaps, perhaps struggling a little bit at the moment? It's really struggling. But then Jimmy Choo has struggled in itself. And Jimmy Choo is actually, you know, it's one of its biggest businesses is out in Asia. So I don't know how much it's really going to save itself on the US side by doing this deal. I think it really is just about getting back up that sort of glittering ladder of we own Jimmy Choo and, and that's great. And more consolidations come in the uh, luxury space, do you reckon? I think there probably is, yeah. Um, I do highlight a couple of other deals that have happened in this space, really just to compare and contrast. Um, it's interesting because valuations in luxury at the moment are absolutely off the scale. So when Jimmy Choo put itself up for sale, I did think that actually the premium might be quite thin the underlying trading hasn't been great and the shares were very expensive yeah i was gonna say when you put yourself up for sale i mean you, you generally that would suggest that and i wouldn't say desperation but you no. know you don't expect to be able to to get the price that you want and the premium is massive the I mean. premium is 37 and a half percent must have been um, some buyers out there then there must have yeah. been 
And even on the day, it was still, when trading first opened, it was still a 17% premium. The shares have subsequently gone up, so the premium is now pretty much nil. But um, but yeah, and you compare it to someone like Coach, who is also a US handbag ma- maker. who I would, them before. Yeah, and I would pitch them actually very similarly to Michael Kors in a lot of ways. They just bought Kate Spade, which is kind of a quirky accessories brand out there. And even that premium was only 27.5%. And Kate Spade, to me, is um, much more accessible, much more fun, and... Um, the underlying trading there has been better than at Jimmy Choo. So, okay. interesting. Not just finance in this magazine, but fashion too. Oh, yeah. You can there come you know to what handbags to go and buy. Um, I, I know we've got Simon Thompson waiting on the line. So, Ian, let's just quickly rattle off a couple of results. What's your highlight of the week? I'm going to give you a couple very quickly. Money Supermarket um, lost a bit of momentum. Is that a highlight? <laughs> it was a low. It was a low, a low light of the week. It was a highlight if you find price comparison websites interesting, which to my maybe disservice I do. But they, but they are interesting. We we do spend an inordinate amount of time discussing discussing price comparison websites in the office. They are. In, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's a growing sector with the demerger de- of GoCompare.com. There's the potential float of BGL Group, which is uh, what Compare the Market is a part of. Although on the basis of this, maybe that will be delayed even further. And um, basically, for Money Supermarket, so that's an IPO. That that's an IPO that was expected in the first quarter this year, then was pushed towards the last quarter of this year, um, and we need to probably check back in on that and see where that where that is. I mean, they're slightly different businesses in terms of their different weightings, different sectors. Money supermarket um, has struggled because energy, just fewer people switching in energy, a market with a huge amount of kind of political risk, and it looks like uh, companies sitting on their hands. But that's so weird because you know energy is the is the political hot potato. It's you know it's the area where there's always you know accusations. That, that consumers being ripped off floating around and yet people don't switch and yet people don't switch well it's a big problem in a lot it's not just energy financial services speaking of financial services potentially another highlight this week another low light actually Provident Financial uh, um, we might talk about that a little bit later with regard to the taking stock column I wrote um, but uh, the problems that they had in their home credit business have um uh, worsened a little bit um, and also they've got some slower growth elsewhere so that um, FTSE 100 subprime lender ha- has come up against some problems. Well that popped up in our profit warnings feature last week quite prominently and we were we were quite negative about its prospects then and, and that seems to be borne out by the... Uh by the latest results. And just the other thing to mention is possibly a news story that we had uh, this week on capacity in airlines, a really live discussion topic at the moment. Uh, EasyJet, Wizz Air and Ryanair all came out with trading updates that showed similar things, revenue increasing, but that old problem with uh, the airline industry, which is that low fuel makes it easier for companies to invest uh, and then they build up their fleets and then they worry about yield. So people worried about capacity crunch in the airline industry based on the outlook statement from one of the uh, from a few of the, the major airlines that are listed this week. And just as a backdrop to that, you also have the Brexit negotiations and what that will mean for UK EU travel. Yeah, I mean, Algie and I actually it wasn't in the profit warnings feature last week, but Algie and I looked, we did discuss on this podcast the possibility that cyclical industries are, I mean, certainly one of the categories he identified as, as likely to warn multiple times, and air, airlines did come up in that discussion. I, so I found it quite interesting this week on uh, airlines uh, particularly. You had earlier in the week the air traffic controllers of the UK complaining that, that the skies were getting too busy, that we'd, we'd hit a record level of air traffic. And that unless we invested in, in better air traffic control, we would have a, have a real capacity problem. And then on the other hand, you've got stories talk, talking about 
Ryanair, for example, we're not going to fly from the UK. We, you know, withdrawing from the UK, the UK is going to be cut off. It's going to be literally an air-free zone. It's extraordinary, the, the kind of divergence of the, the news out there. The reality is it's going to carry on and it's a busy industry. It will carry on. I suppose it's just where the where will the flights originate from that could change. Well, I can't um, get to I can't get to Europe from anywhere except <laughs> where I live. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly right. But uh, yeah, I think obviously there's a political aspect to this uh, Ryanair, uh, where those comments came from. Um, Is this not just not yeah. O'Leary again being uh, O'Leary? Yeah, it's very obviously it's a very politicised figure. It was very ac- active during the um, referendum campaign. And yet, they do have to organise um, flights well in advance. So they're one of those industries that are getting the most vocal now about the post-Brexit deal in terms of regulations and, and trade because they're going to have to start planning the earliest. So while perhaps we shouldn't listen to the scare stories, that's possibly a different story from the uh, kind of industry trend towards kind of overcapacity um, and then the natural crunch that follows. Uh, Algae has made the point to me before that the problem was low oil price has meant that um, there hasn't been the kind of austerity that the, um, the airline industry needed to reduce its reduce its fleet that the bad times the the dip that we saw wasn't bad enough for them to really kind of rein in their expansion and that's what people are getting worried about in the market yeah but that would still represent a a kind of a a temporary downturn necessary rather than a long-term structural decline of this industry which is only really going one way yeah exactly okay well let's get over to simon before he uh, before he hangs up on us how are you doing simon but very well, John. It's, it's a bit cloudier today than a week ago when we spoke last. So, um, but the sun's just but, come out here, <laughs> which is good news because the test is just taking place down the road. So, uh, oh, and I'm going to the cricket tonight. So let's hope. Who are you? Yeah, not that one. I'm going to watch Essex, of course. It's the only cricket I care about. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. Uh, let's uh, let's crack on, Simon. Enough talk of cricket. What have you got for us this week? Um, I covered 10 companies in total over two columns, 5,000 words this week, and uh, there's a few that stand out. One is a aim-traded stockbroker and financial services outsource called Jarvis Securities. I put the readers into this stock back in mid-November at about £3. It's about £4.80 now, but I still think there's significant upside to the share price. They uh, had results. They've got two divisions, one of which is a private client breaking operation with share the active and exo low cost online share trading services and with markets at record highs that that's been doing great the other part of the business is a corporate division which provides outsourced and partnered financial admin services to big clients like goldman sachs it's got cash under administration now in excess of 150 million pounds four years ago that was less than 70 profits they're going great up 38 percent um in the first half to 2.35 million. Um, the full year forecast is 4.4 million from WH Ireland, the highest broker. Um, I think that could be on the low side. That that embeds 19% year-on-year growth. Well, they've done 38% profit growth in the first half. They've got cash in the balance sheet. That was another take from the results. Um, net cash reserves um, after you strip out cash set aside for settlements of market transactions. Net cash reserves were up 50% to roughly 40 pence a share of the £4.80 share price. Are, are they cash start. reserves that they need to hang on to for regulatory purposes, or is no, that no, cash no, that no, potentially no. at some point uh, gets uh, returned? No, it, it's getting returned. I mean, WH Ireland predicts a 25% rise in the payout per share to 22 pence this year. That's 22 pence over a share price of £4.80. That implies a prospective yield of 4.7% or thereabouts. Strip out cash, their cash of 
the balance sheet from the share price and the shares are trading 13 times forward earnings. But with the potential for further upgrades, um, I've got a target price of 525, share price offering the market today is 480. I think there's probably upside to my target price as well if, if this earnings momentum continues. So that, that's the first one this week, Jarvis. Java Securities. You mentioned one thing there, which uh, is that that, that obviously uh, activity is being somewhat driven by by the strength of the markets. Um, you know, we if we we are in for a spell of of market weakness, what happens to, to companies like Jarvis? Well, they've got two sides of the business. The, the corporate division is just it's growing very quickly um, and solidly. Um, big organizations, big banks want to outsource back office functions. They, they don't want to hassle with it, whereas Jarvis are quite happy to take on that, uh, that side. So that's, that's more like a sort of an, an annuitized revenue stream then? Well, it is. I mean, it's, it, it, these clients are sticky, so they're, they're not going to disappear overnight. So I, I see this more as recurring revenue. Well, what, what about the broking side of things? Because, you know, that's where you could see there being some fall off in activity if markets were to take a turn for the worse. Well, well, it, yeah, I, I accept that, but on the basis that their profits over the last few years, 2014, 15, 16, PBT 3.2, 3.5, 3.7, upward curve. But if you actually normalize that, um, and remember through, through those periods, we did have some dodgy periods as well in the market, and we still made money. So I, I think it's, it's more insulated, given the type of business they do, than... Um, most financial services providers. Okay. Uh, I think there was another broker you wanted to talk about this week as well. You yeah, mentioned WH Island as, uh, as providing the forecasts and being the house broker for Jarvis, but you, you're interested in them in their own right. Um, I am. I, I interviewed the Chief Executive Richard coming back on Monday when they had results, and they, they were fab results. They had a dodgy period 12 months ago when they were loss-making and they were fined by the FSA for, for not having the right procedures in place in terms of their client admin. Um, they, they've rectified that, profits are bouncing back. Um, two key takes from this. One is corporate's broking arm, 81 corporate clients they've got there. Well, that turned in, by my reckoning, close to 1 million pre-tax profits before central overheads. Um, they raised capital for the likes of Caretech, um, a company that I know that um, Harriet has, has followed as well as myself, um, and uh, there is £48 million pounds for that company in the, in the periods. Um, the, the thing that wasn't um, given away in the press release, which I got out of Richard, is that I quote, a corporate breaking pipeline for the second half in early 2018 is stronger than it has been at any time since I've been here. So that, that's the guidance from him. They poached a chap called Adam Pollock from Zeus Capital to, hide, to head up this side of the business. That was a really good recruitment, in my opinion. The, the other thing is they've got a private wealth management division, which has grown assets under management by about 8% to 3.1 billion quid um, in the last six months. It's outsourced back office functions again. Um, we're looking at total savings roughly from this um, outsourcing of over £1 million. Um, I've been running through the figures, and Equity Development is the research firm on this. They reckon in a normal year, um, this company could make between 2 and 3 million operating profits. Well, it's got 10 million cash in the balance sheet. It's got 1.1 billion or so of discretionary assets under management. Um, they're high margin, 
assets under management. It's got another two billion pounds of um, lower margin assets under management. Their figures, which I agree with, is that the business, if you actually value it on a comparable basis to other companies in the markets, um, has got to be worth £72 million pounds, or £2.59 a share. Well, the current share price is £1.50. So that offers 60, well, 67% upside or thereabouts. I, I like it a lot. I put the readers in at 68. The current price is £1.50. My minimum target price is 175 And frankly, I think it could go higher as well. All right. Well, let's uh, let's stick to financial services for your uh, for your next uh, uh, update this week, which is PCF. I must admit, this company I'd not really come across that much before. Tell um, us about it. It changed. It changed its name. It used to be called Private Commercial Finance. I still haven't um, come across it before. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't. Okay. No, I'm, there's a lot of companies out there, Simon. This one has passed um, me by. Tell me about it. Okay. It's um. It's got two two parts of its lending business. It used to be a finance house. It's just got a banking license. Um. So it can actually take on retail deposits. So that's like, a new that's a new thing, yeah. It, it's literally just happened. That, it's, they, they've been they've been going through the process with the financial authorities to actually get this regulated and um, actually approved. And it's literally just happened. So as of now, you can actually uh, deposit your money with a PCF bank. And um, the, the idea here is to treble its portfolio of loans to roughly. £350 million over the next three years. The funding from that will be 250 of the £350 million will come from retail deposits. Um, the remainder, remainder will be from existing bank loans. Um, they're targeting roughly a net interest margin of 8%. That's what they're looking at in a return of equity of 12.5%. Um, their lending is to two, two separate areas. One is small, medium-sized enterprises, so asset finance, uh, vehicles, plant hire, etc., things like that. Um, but also they lend to consumers, and it's the used car loan market. Now, the share price has been under pressure this year, as, as has that of some of the uh, car dealers. And part of the reason for that is all the talk about the PCP, the personal contract plan market, which has basically funded 80 to 85% of all the new cars that that have actually come onto the market in the last um, three or four years. Indeed, which is something that, that Harriet has covered in this week's cover feature. Okay, well, the, the, the point about this company is they've got absolutely no exposure to it whatsoever. They're a rate-for-risk lender. They, they basically lend their money purely on higher-purchase products. They cater um, for each individual um, loan application differently depending on the credit risk. Um, but they, they don't have any exposure to PCP. So they, their share prices come under pressure this year because of, you know, the fallout from people expecting um, the whole PCP market to go bang. Um, but I, I think the derating has just gone too far given the upside from this business. And basically 50% of lending is not consumers anyway, it's to small businesses. Mm. So, so this one, I mean, this one is very much uh, under the radar in terms of uh, of the finance industry. I mean, as you say, it's only just got its banking license. Um, it's perhaps been out of favour because of this this uh, this perceived exposure to a, a what what some may say is an iffy area of the market. But um, but but potentially uh, interesting. What, what do you think sort of upside we're looking at here on this one? Forty uh, percent. Um, stock price is twenty five pence at the moment. So I've got a target price of thirty five pence. Um, that's thirty five pence would be roughly um, 10, 11 times earnings in 2019. 
um, or thereabouts, so uh, two years out. Um, I mean, basically, you've got to look at the loan growth they can generate, um, take a prudent view of impairments on the balance sheets. I mean, their impairments at the moment are fantastic. Um, And then ascertain what's a reasonable price-to-book value ratio you're actually willing to pay, assuming they can actually target a return on equity of around about 12.5%, which is what the chief executive, Scott Mabry, um, has told me during our uh, telephone interviews. I mean, do, do you think uh, that, you know, if there is some tightening up of, of the, the whole PCP uh, financing market for, for cars, um, that they can actually benefit from, from that? They would, without doubt. I mean, some of the some of the lending on PCP is reckless, in my view. Um, I, I can tell you stories of people that have basically walked into car showrooms they, these people would not be able to get a mortgage, but they're they're quite happily being lent some twenty five, thirty thousand pounds cars that they blatantly can't actually afford to to um, to afford to use. Oh, well, how um, do you think I got my Ferrari? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering that. <laughs> I don't have a Ferrari, um, incidentally. <laughs> it's a Lamborghini, isn't it? It's a Lamborghini, yeah. <laughs> um, um, no, no I, I'd agree with you that, that they could be a beneficiary if, if the PCB market tightens up and the loan criteria that's, um, well, or should I say the non-loan criteria, because, um, which Harriet, so I'd like to hear if, she, if she'd like to give her views on this in terms of the type of lending criteria that the big um, motor manufacturers are, are quite happy to to offer to possibly people that that really shouldn't be borrowing that type of money against a vehicle, um, and whether or not she thinks that um, you know the market will tighten up. Yeah, Harry. I mean, you, you as you say, we, you mentioned this in the feature. Are we? Are you worried about the the, uh, the, the car finance market? Yes, in short, um, it's something that we also looked at on our credit cycle podcast, um, particularly about the sort of tremors in the US are that much. M- worse uh, than what's going on here at the moment. The company that I actually picked up on in the feature is SNU, which readers might be a bit familiar with. It's not dissimilar to what Simon is talking about, which is that they don't have massive exposure actually to PCPs. Um, it's the same um, higher purchase agreements, which they, uh, which their loans are typically structured around. Um, However, I think this is possibly where I start to disagree with Simon, although Simon, correct me if I'm wrong, which is that the the brokers seem to think that actually there is sort of hidden risk there um, related to the motor finance market, being that if the problems we see in new cars at the moment, which are obviously much more to do with PCPs, start to have a sort of residual value risk um, than in the used car market, which is what higher purchase is generally used against, then we could see a a decline in second-hand car prices as well. Mm. And that's when we start to see more problems with with that sort of secondary loan market. Um, And unfortunately, I would have said that this week's update from Verti Motors did start to show that. It was their used car margin, which was seriously damaged. Yeah, I mean, we've always, you know, I used to cover the car car, uh, retail sector. And and it's it's incredible. You don't really appreciate until you start really digging into it how, how connected used and new actually are in terms of the business models of uh, of all of the guys selling cars in the uk um so yeah i mean i i, w- I would tend to echo uh that i mean simon you've covered virtue i mean you you must have had a look at that update i've had a look at the update I and mean, it's, it's not it's clearly not one of my best i i 
ran with it on the way up. And since the EU referendum or months before the EU referendum last year, it's, it's just been under pressure and people are basically getting seriously worried about the potential for a downturn in used car prices, um, given that, you know, the used car park has increased dramatically mm. over the last three years. And I, I, I accept I accept that, um, but I also accept that lenders, assuming they're um, the type of people they're actually lending to in the first place and the type of credit quality um, and the underwriting uh, procedures they've put in place are actually are actually up to scratch, that the, the lenders themselves um, aren't overly exposed. I mean, obviously, if they were lending 110% against a car or something stupid like that, um, and with a massive balloon payment at the end of it, which they, they expect the individual to actually pay, then it's just a recipe to, for disaster, just as, you know, Northern Rock was 10 years ago. That's the type of thing, in effect, they were doing on houses, um, over lending. Um, but w- when you've got a higher purchase products over, you know, a three, four, five-year term for some of these products, um, that's been paid down in terms of the capital quite quickly, then um, it's actually insulating the lender um, whereas with a PCP, I mean, for example, through my inbox this week, um, I think it was Confused.com, um, we're offering um, a brand new, you know, really good Volkswagen um, Golf, uh, list price 25000 forget about paying the deposit on it. You know, they, they paid a the 5000 deposit on it, but they wanted you to pay £300 a month for the next three years in this car um, and a guarantee of a certain um, residual value at the end of it. Um, now, it's that type of lending that I'd be worried about uh, rather than the higher purchase product that the likes of PCF do. I, I guess, I mean, you know, when you put it like that, the thing that will worry me is the, the uh, guaranteed residual value. Because if you have this booming car market where everyone's going out and buying new cars and PCP, as Harriet says, you get to the end of that three years, you know, you can't predict where prices are going to be if there is a glut of used cars on the market. Yeah, I, I totally agree, but which is why I'd want a higher purchase agreement or mm. back a higher purchase lender rather than the shares in the PCP lender. It should also um, be pointed out, I think, as well, that SNU is a typical subprime lender, and that goes back to what Simon is saying ultimately about choosing the criteria of who you lend to more strictly um, and being more disciplined in that approach. And at the moment, you know, even if someone was a was a secret shopper and went into a car dealership, you'd have a you'd have a PCP before you'd know it. Mm. Okay, uh, right, Simon. I think we've got time for one more. Where do, where do you want to go? Where should we go? Should we go to toilet rolls, or shall we go to uh, viruses on your PC? Um, well, that, that's a good one. So, Crossrider is a constituent of my 2017 Barton Share Portfolio. It does um, um, it provides security software. It's also got an online distribution platform where it sells products for other companies. Um, it announced the acquisition of a company called CyberGhost, um, which is a provider of virtual private networks. Um, it's got about 145,000 people that actually pay for the premium version of that product, $30 a year, uh, which is about £23 of thereabouts, current exchange rates. Um, it had a trading statement this week, and um, that acquisition is working out far better than they'd anticipated when they made it three months ago. 
Um, the other parts of the business are growing strongly as well. So the amount of revenue going through its app distribution platform, products like Raymarge and Driver Agents, which are security software that you put on your computer to stop hackers basically taking advantage of you. Um, well, anyway, the revenue from that app distribution platform has increased 13% in the past six months. Um, I put the readers into the stock simply because it had cash in the balance sheet. It was slowly rated when you stripped out cash, and I thought that the management could actually invest it wisely. Well, they've clearly done that with Cyber Ghosts, and by my calculation, if you strip out um, net funds of roughly £52 million from a market value of £90 million, then it's trading on eight times cash-adjusted EPS for the full year. And management, uh, chief executive, said this week that they are trading in line with those forecasts. So although the shares have actually risen by about 35% since I said buy them back in February in the, the bargain share portfolio, I still think the significant upside, um, especially if they hit, hit those forecasts. Yeah, I, I had a look at some of this software after I read your column because cause I have a, an ancient PC that I still rely heavily upon, which as it gets older gets slower, which I, I guess is the, the rule of owning PC. So I, you know, I have looked around for... For the kind of software you're talking about that helps you basically you know, improve the performance of your PC. And there's loads of it out there. What, what, what are they doing differently? Um, they, they offer, for example, Raymarge, which is a patented Microsoft-based product, which basically cleans up your computer. That means they work with uh, Microsoft to, to get their absolutely. products working properly? Uh, absolutely. Okay, that's, that's um, a differentiator, clearly. Well, that, that's why they've got this platform. So it's not just their own products, the driver agent, which is like a maintenance software product um, for the device drivers, which scans computers for outdated drivers, etc., on their, their um, systems. Um, they own that outright, but most of the products they actually sell over this platform are for, for other companies. So there's an incentive for other companies to actually come to them, tap into their database of, of users, um, and actually, last year, if my figures, um, yeah, I've got it here. So, 250,000 individual product sales they made last year. They generated 28 million dollars worth of revenue. Okay, that's interesting. Because um, I mean, a lot of the software out there is free, um, and I and I guess most people who are going out looking for this kind of stuff, or they don't want to pay. So, so I guess what they, they have is a database of people with a propensity to pay. They they may not want to pay, but the problem with any product that scans a computer is you want it to be up to date. So you want continuous updates from be it Microsoft or whoever to make sure that you've got the latest version that isn't going to be hacked, that's not going to put your personal data at risk. Um, so it's more of a case of actually trusting the um, the product you've got, which is why people will go for a Microsoft-based product, yeah, which yeah, is very much, which um, they've got a conversion rate roughly of 5%. Um, of all inquiries that people actually click on, download very much software, um, take a free scan of their computer, and then they're actually asked to actually pay for you know the full service. Well, five percent of those people actually download it do actually um, take up the full the full option, which for that is ninety nine dollars a year before incentives. Yeah, well, actually, uh, the one I looked at, I think it was about thirty quid. They're offering it for about thirty quid. I'm I mean, almost tempted. The, the, <laughs> I mean, they, they do they do vary a lot in price, um, but all, all I can say is that with the WannaCry um, outbreak at the NHS and other organisations, which basically 
um, as frozen people's computers, a major corporate organisation. Yeah, I mean, as, as we know, that happened to Ricky Bankers, which is you know, a very large multinational supplier of, uh, of, uh, of household goods. And I think we've covered them in the magazine this week. You'll have to pick it up to find out where. Um, but yeah, no, 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 big problem. Get it. It's, it's, it's a big problem. And the more this happens, the more that you switch on your television or go online and you, you, you know, have, have alerts on your computer saying, you know, we've got this product to actually help you safeguard against hackers and viruses, then more people are actually going to, you know, sign up for these these um, maintenance software products, especially since most people don't have a brand new computer with the latest versions on them. So, um, no, I can see this as a growth industry. Just look at how well Sophos has done, mm. uh, both share price growth and in terms of uh, deals, and it's had just another trading update on uh, Thursday saying that, yeah, this demand's been really strong for protecting people, especially on older um, operating systems. There you go. All right. Thank you, Simon. I'll let you no, get back to the, uh, to, the, to the what now looks like beautiful weather. Um, it's, it's not as beautiful down here. Oh, it's coming, Simon. It's coming. Fingers crossed, John. Fingers so, uh, crossed. Anyway, keep, keep your eyes on the cricket. It's going to be a good day of cricket when Essex win later. Absolutely. absolutely. Lovely. Cheers, Simon. Speak Cheers. Soon. Cheers. See you in a bit. Yeah, so, so Ian, actually, something that Simon said there uh, struck me that, you know, Simon spends a lot of time researching the companies that he, he recommends, um, but also he spends a lot of time speaking to management. Um, now, I know you've written about that in your column, Taking Stock, this week. It's something I've written about before, because this, I think, access to management is a double-edged sword, which is the, the subject of Taking Stock this week. Yes, and I was speaking to Kate Beely, our Deputy Personal Finance Editor, about this earlier. She, uh, she was speaking to Nick Train, famous fund manager. He doesn't like talking to management for that reason, uh, that they might... He doesn't. Know, he said to her that it's not proven that it works, talking to management, in terms of it adds any value. I suppose the downside of talking to them is they may convince you against your better judgment and against your analysis of the numbers. I've been there. No, seriously, I have been there as you know, as a company's writer. I've I've had a view, you know, sat down with management or you know, got on the on a blower with them and and thought, ah, oh, yeah, put those those hard questions to them and I thought, yeah, you know, maybe I've, maybe I've been a bit harsh here and and actually I was right. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. It's a funny one, and uh, um, I suppose as a journalist, you also think perhaps oh, I might have missed something. Uh, the reason uh, I was bringing it up was that interestingly, we've been doing a lot of these boardroom talk podcasts this year, which is a really nice new format where we talk to a CEO or a chairman of a, a company about their progress. It's a bit more of a deep dive on a particular company. But two companies that we've had in uh, Provident Financial and SafeStyle. So Provident Financial, the subprime uh, lender, and SafeStyle, the window and door specialist um, in the months following or even the weeks following us talking to them have had profit warnings um, so it, which have begged the question uh, did we miss something uh, did, did we not listen carefully enough to what management was saying do you have to listen to how management are saying what they're saying because quite often if we get management in for a podcast like that they may well be repeating or they often are repeating the latest numbers from either the half year results the quarterlies or the capital markets well, day but of course they can't tell you anything exactly that, that isn't wide more widely known which so. which begs the question why do we do it yeah if they if they're going to come in with a presentation from the capital markets day run through the numbers from that um 
what's interesting there perhaps is that they will then give you the context around that and you'll get an idea of the tone you'll get a, maybe more uh, depth on the strategy i think as a, as a journalist uh, that it's a good to get as much information as possible and then ultimately in our case the readers then decide um how, how much they let that influence their own decision i mean i guess it's quite interesting you know we, we we've often in the past done this behind closed in fact we've always in the past done this behind closed doors at our desks or or, or or in meetings because we didn't have the medium of the podcast to to, to now we can share those meetings and so, so I guess readers can judge for themselves you know when they're listening to the answers whether they can hear those nuance nuances in there yeah and I think there are kind of lessons to be learned from when we have these occasions such as to be very careful to pick out what the metrics are that managers are exactly using. So SafeStyle was Which are not necessarily the ones that you want to focus on. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And obviously they'll pick, pick the most positive metrics and that's an obvious point. But it, it's quite telling in some ways. With some of these companies like SafeStyle, for example, the thing that actually happened, the things they said on our podcast were exactly true, which were that they were still growing their revenue and they were growing their market share. What we learned in the um, subsequent trading update was that the market deterioration was perhaps greater than people expected had expected but that's not a company specific problem that uh, that they can't be expected to tell you in exactly. advance of a trading update exactly but the point still stands if they're talking about market share well market share is not everything if the market's shrunk down to you know one pound then it's not great having no. 90 pence there is a reason there to focus on the what is being said, but also how it's being said. I think also you can take something away from that in terms of what are management excited about, what are they trying to stress. So there's a few nuances there, but I'd be interested in uh, readers, and please tweet at me, Ian K.M. Smith. I'd be interested in readers' and listeners' point of view about this as well, whether they like talking to management or not. Mm, I'm in two minds. I've had some really great chats with management. I've had some where well, they've seemed great at the time, but, but I've come away feeling... Yeah, ultimately, some weeks later, when the profit warning has materialised, hoodwinked. Mm, I think hoodwinked is a good word. And, <laughs> um, I speak as someone who conducted that safe style boardroom talk. What I think is actually interesting as well when we go about commissioning those boardroom talks with management, certainly from my own experience, and admittedly, that's only one sector for retail, but um, a lot of companies want to meet beforehand. They want to do a background meeting, particularly if we haven't met face-to-face before, and they want to do a background meeting with me first for 45 minutes, and then they want to record the podcast which I always think is very interesting as well. Mm, good or bad? Interesting. Um, well, I use the word interesting because I think it's it's just that, really. It's not about good or bad. I just think that it's an interest, interesting indication that they obviously don't trust me to begin with. Well, who does, Harriet? I know. It's <laughs> <laughs> my face. You know, you're, a, you're a journalist. That's a generic Exactly. That's a and generic they, they want to, I think they want to scope what kind of style I have. It's different. Some companies I've spoken to on the phone, some of them I've never spoken to them before if they've mm. just come to market. And uh, they want to know my style. They want to know what kind of questions I've got up my sleeves. And, you know, with the PRs, we're very strict and we're always saying, you know, we don't do the thing of sending over 10 questions before we interview people. So they think they can get around it with a background meeting and try and flag up all the possible issues and then schedule a podcast a week later. Um, I, I always try and say no, but it's it's difficult when... Because you want them to come in. Because so they have want, to feel yeah, comfortable yeah, enough to come in. Yeah, you want to establish so. a working relationship with them anyway for the future. Um, so, yeah, it's it's tricky. Now, whether or not you feel hoodwinked by the subsequent profit warning, I do think the fact that you have um, that information from management, you can get a sense from the podcast of what they were of their wider perspective on the business. So, for example, with Provident Financial, yes, they are having operational problems in this very core business for them, their traditional doorstep lending, uh, the home credit business. 
And yet that's part of a wider kind of corporate shift the company's ongoing. So when you hear then about the problems, your uh, subsequent decision about what you do if you're a shareholder should be informed by where you think management's taking the business and whether you think the business will get over that. And I'd say it's the same with SafeStar. The CEO um, in your podcast, to be fair, was quite sour I would say about the consumer environment prompted by a question from you saying and he said we're exposed to exactly the same things as other retailers I thought his tone was quite muted but he um, and the CFO that was also on the interview did have a a plan for how they would deal with this and showed a good understanding as you would expect of their market so I think perhaps it comes back to trust in management once the problem has happened do you think based based on everything that you've heard that the strategy that they had espoused still fits? Yes, and how honest they were with you in, in terms of the questions you've actually put to them, but they are able mm. to answer in terms of, of, of the way that the, the regulation works around what they're able to say and not say. Yeah, I mean, our tips editor, actually, Algie Hall, had a very interesting perspective on that safe style profit warning because I was, as you can imagine, sort of quite discombobulated from the whole thing. It had only happened, the podcast recording had only happened seven days before this profit warning. So I was chatting to him about it and I said, you know, what kind of management sits in an interview knowing what's going to happen? And Algie's perspective was that actually, and of course this is conjecture, but he said actually if if the managers knew about it, I would expect them to have cancelled the interview. 100% agree with that. And make up an excuse, you know, say the CEO is travelling, say he's unavailable for interviews at the moment, whatever, um, just to get out of it. Don't, you know, obviously don't say, oh, we've we've planned an update so we can't do it anymore because then obviously that implies bad news. But just make up a generic excuse. He, his perspective was that the fact that they conducted that interview suggests that they didn't even know that seven days later they might be issuing a profit warning. I think I think he's probably right. And I, and I think, you know... Companies are operating, I mean, data has become a lot more real time. So, you know, they're operating, they're telling the market what they know from the data they have, but the sales data is coming in all the time. And you probably, you possibly could have had a deterioration in, in a week that they hadn't previously seen in the, in the numbers through the, the management accounts. And the data that they gave out, some of the data that was very negative was industry-wide data, wasn't mm-hmm. it, about the contraction in the um, home improvement market. And uh, and then also what informed the share price fall was the outlook. So they said they were kind of being prudently grim. They didn't yeah. say grim. Let's, I mean, <laughs> let's, let's let's stick to the subject of prudently grim when it comes to the consumer, um, because that's the, the subject of this week's cover feature. It absolutely is. Let's yeah. talk about that. I mean, I I have had a theory, which I have talked about in the magazine, that that, that we are approaching a point where the consumer's propensity to spend starts to decrease. That there are many pressures mounting uh, around credit, around wage growth, uh, around the housing market, which is obviously a big driver of consumer spending. Uh, and what you've done this week, Harry, is kind of trying to pull all, all that together. And there's lots to pull together to, to try and get a real picture of where we are. Yeah, I mean, it's been, we've sort of had a bit of battle in the office, haven't we? Because every time you've suggested doing this sort of a piece, I've been saying the data is so dense and ultimately conflicting. And unfortunately, it still is to a large extent. Um, but hopefully, I've pulled it together in sort of these broad themes, which is obviously to do with inflation, what that does to the GFK consumer confidence index, what it does for the ONS retail sales, and then individually what the companies are telling us. And then I do finish off with just sort of um, in-depth looks at food retail and motor finance. And motor finance, which you've discussed already. I mean, let's, let's, let's go through some of the graphs. I mean, I like this one. So, you know, there is this big story around inflation, particularly related to, to the, the falling value of the pound and Brexit. So, so there is this kind of theory that prices are getting more expensive, but but actually the data doesn't really back that up. And looking at this, this graph on, uh, on the first page of the feature, you would you would you would look at that and suggest that actually sales have held up, but only because retailers were taking a massive hit 
on prices. Yeah, and a lot of retailers that I cover, um, if we leave out the luxury sector, are what I would class as middle market or mass market. And so they really don't have, in this kind of environment where confidence is so shaky from one month to the next, they do not have the confidence in their own business models to say we can push through um, even a 5% price increase, let alone more, and be confident in the knowledge that our customers are so loyal they will continue to shop with us. Um, So I would say that although price rises have happened, they've happened modestly, and they're really only looking sharp against last year. If you compare them to sort of 2014, they're actually a lot considerably still lower than 2014. Um, So the argument for things are suddenly a lot more expensive doesn't quite stack up yet. You've got to look at it in in a broader sense. Well, actually, there was figures from the ONS as well saying that over 2,500 products have shrunk since 2012. Everyone knows there's less, uh, fewer triangles in a Toblerone, um, but it, that could be something where it's the same price, but you're actually getting less for your money. Shrinkflation. Shrinkflation. Yeah, this has been a big topic this week, actually, as I've been writing it. I know that the BBC and The Telegraph have done big exposés on packets of crisps, how many, pa- how many individual crisps are now in a supposed 30-gram bag. People and actually count that sort of stuff. People count that sort of stuff, John, I'm afraid to tell you, and it might include our dear friend Harry Wallop doing some of these exposés. But, uh, but yeah, there are apparently 11 crisps in a packet of Walkers now, which is pretty interesting. Well, you don't want to buy that rubbish anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but it's, it's a good standard sort of indication of a, of a generic mass market product that has been hugely popular in the past and remains on many supermarket and individual retailer shelves. I'm going and to start counting my mini cheddars in a packet. Well, yeah, I urge you to. They don't, they, seem to be, they don't seem to be as densely filled as they used to be. No. I also think what's interesting from the ONS stuff is that sort of it depends whether you look at these stats monthly or whether you look at them three monthly, whether you look at them year on year or month to month, um, because it, it basically is all over the place. There's not really a concurrent thread that you can pick at just yet. Yeah, so the June figures, the June ONS uh, retail sales figures looks OK. Actually, yeah, but May, were, May had been a shocker. May had been a shocker. Um, and June, of course, what we had was heat waves. <laughs> hey, so there's, there's all barbecues and something. Yeah, we're back to that old same cliche, I'm afraid, which is that retail and any consumer facing company, to be honest, does well in hot weather. Um you know, people get all jolly. They go out and buy a new summer wardrobe. They go and buy barbecues, garden furniture, the works. A new summer wardrobe? Yep. I just wear all the old T-shirts I've had. You are, you are the not the best of example of this, John. <laughs> I mean, Sainsbury's, Sainsbury's said that people were getting, uh, buying paddling pools and fans, right? Yeah, and B&M... Hopefully actually, not to be used at the same time. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Argos also did, um, yeah, amazingly well out of that, obviously being tied up with Sainsbury's. It's uh, it's my driving fa- a lot of footfall to stores. My, my dad, for his grandkids, bought a inflatable slide that goes into a paddling pool, which wow. is... It's quite amazing. I think we talked about this last week. I think I, I think I said last week that I used to just get a standard paddling ball and a standard slide and combine the two. Your dad bought it <laughs> for his grandkids. Oh, okay. Not for him. I imagine Ian Senior going down the slide. I'm getting one this weekend. Um, you mentioned food retail very, very briefly because because retail general retail has been worrying and yes. and that's reflected in some of the share prices across the sector food retail which had been in in the doldrums and i think doldrums is a generous description of what's yeah. been happening to food retail suddenly it's, a, it's the place, place to be. Yeah, because for them, price inflation is a godsend. It's brought an end to the price wars. Even so the small infl- so so you, i mean when you say price inflation overall prices are a, all price of all goods which are not going up as much as we would expect to. Food price, food prices are going up. They are going up, yeah. And what's really interesting about that is that there is a chart on the last page, which sort of um, is 
a bit hidden, unfortunately, but it basically shows that um, food store sales have increased 1% in May. But interestingly... In values. In value terms. In value terms, exactly. Interestingly, in volume terms, it was completely flat. Um, so most of what is going on in food retail is ultimately, therefore, price-driven. Yeah, and if you look at that chart, then you see that the, the, the differential is much, much shallower in, yeah. in non-food. Yeah. Do we like supermarkets now? Oh, that's a good question. For me, supermarkets are so still so fragmented in their individual stories. I would never, still to this day, even though things are looking better, I would not be going out saying supermarkets are the thing, um, particularly because the likes of Morrison's, for example, very expensive stock. I mean, amazing recovery story. It's a recovery price. Yeah, that no one really saw coming, actually, because they were too distracted by Tesco at the time. Um, But yeah, you're going to pay a lot for, for Morrison as well. Uh, meanwhile, speaking of Tesco, the whole Tesco Booker thing is kind of a different animal now. You're not just buying into the Tesco uh, recovery price. You're also paying into added risk that that merger doesn't go through. I think there is a derating risk if it doesn't go but through. See, that's funny, isn't it? Because because when they announced it, it was this terrible deal. I mean, the general commentary was that this was a stupid thing to do, which I disagreed with. I think, I I think we, with, we largely yeah. disagree with that as a magazine. We, we did say it wasn't good for Booker shareholders, but that's no, a different because they issue. Weren't get, they weren't getting perhaps the price that we thought they should because mm-hmm. Booker is a great business but now there's the risk is the derating risk is that te- the deal doesn't go through so because, was it a good deal or a bad deal well <laughs> ultimately i'm not sure yeah i mean the the derating risk is inherent for me in the fact that a lot of the lot of the criticism at the time was directed at tesco management for taking its eye off the ball you know not not focusing on the thing in hand to use another cliche how many more have i got um but those investors will be happy if it doesn't go through i mean it was already priced well, really I think highly wrong, for recovery. There i i th- the question is i think they will be happy but ultimately it will sort of prove them right but right for the wrong reason which is that tesco management are not sort of strategically able to identify the right merger or acquisition for it, for them or time it correctly in the uk market I can't think of a better acquisition they could possibly make. I agree. But if it doesn't go through, I think that will be the market's reaction is Tesco doesn't know what it's doing. Mm, that would be harsh. Yeah. That would be harsh. I mean, I mean let's just quickly turn back to the UK consumer. Um, they w- they're going to carry on spending at supermarkets. They might trade down a little bit. But I think, you know, I think the whole sort of the whole switching shopping around, trading down, I think that's kind of we- that is part of the, the fabric of of grocery retail now so certainly so you go to Audi if it's on the way or you you know they've got some offer you just shop around yeah you shop around um, you shop you shop more and you shop sort of in less in value terms per trip so so so, so, so we're used to that idea the supermarkets are getting used to that idea as well but let's go back to the UK consumer because if they're not so worried you know if they're not trying to save money on their food budget they're going to be perhaps trying to save money elsewhere especially as the graph uh, on the second page of the feature shows confidence is in the doldrums it is. Interestingly, this graph doesn't show it, although I do illustrate it in the actual copy, which is that if you looked at those confidence um, declines, which look absolutely terrible on page, if you compare them to um, sort of the, the low of the index back in the sort of height of the recession, that looks like nothing. Yeah, but I mean... If you go back to the height of recession, everyone thought the world was going to end. Yeah, financially. But we've we've always kept a consistent narrative in this magazine over the last year. I think that we are not in a recession yet. You know, there are definitions around that word which just really aren't true. So. No, we're not in a recession. We had some data this week: zero point three percent growth, so, not exactly 
stellar, but not a recession. Yeah, so it doesn't surprise me that they're not as bad. I suppose what's interesting about literally this month's figure, this June figure, is that we're almost, we're creeping back to a low of, um, which hit just after the referendum last year, which was when people were really, really concerned by what had happened to the pound um, in those subsequent four weeks or so. General election effects? Yeah, there is a bit of that, absolutely. Um, I also just think that... um, now the general, I mean, June was obviously a terrible month politically for for many reasons, but also now in the papers, I think the real chaos of Brexit negotiations are coming to the fore. Um, however much you want to jazz them up or not, um, and what you know, read what you believe or whatever. But um, I think that general sort of sense of confusion isn't helping. No, no. But I think what these figures also show is that after these moments of despair the consumer has a habit of forgetting quite quickly the political backdrop that have caused them to be worried yeah, in the first Yeah, and we, we quote some analysts in the piece who have said exactly that. I think the phrase is hardening to political events, which uh, which suggests that we're in this new age of sort of political up and downs and month to month and the consumer's just going to put their blinkers on and carry on. You say it's a new age. I've been looking very much at the 70s in the <laughs> course of my, my university researches and yeah, that's uh, possibly politically worse yeah i mean you know politics has always been over the place i think that is the nature of the beast there you go well consumers difficult i think you picked out some uh some, some companies that you think are best positioned to play it well in this feature yeah. some some that are perhaps uh through through not necessarily market structural issues but their own problems are, are, are struggling and, yeah and, and, I mean, this is ultimately the point that I always come back to with much of my retail coverage in the last 12 months is that there are some market structural issues, as you say, but actually, in a to a large degree, it levels the playing field. And then you have to, as an investor, at least really drill down into company specifics and understand each individual story for what it is. Indeed, and uh, management have to do their job. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, thank you very much, Harriet. And uh, thank you, Ian. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, There's lots more in the magazine. We're starting to really crank up into results season, as we've said already. Uh, Lots in the personal finance and funds section. Uh, A couple of good features. Uh, Chris Dillo looking at momentum as a phenomenon, which is is a phenomenal phenomenon. And James Norrington looking... Essentially, drilling into the numbers behind the whole passive-active uh, discussion, and, and, and concluding that, that that actually, depending on the way you approach it, active management it can offer as much, if not more, uh, value than passive strategies. Assuming you're prepared to take on risk. So, anyway, thank you all for listening. Pick up the magazine in all good news agents. Uh, consumer health check four pound ninety on the newsstand. Or get on the website and subscribe. Thank you very much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.